0: Please take out your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 21. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 14. Genesis 21 verses 8 through 14. I was convicted a while back that though I read a lot, I haven't read a lot of the great classic works of literature. So I began with some of the great works of British literature. I've been working through uh, kind of the corpus of Dickens and, and Jane Austen. And it's been a lot of Jane Austen lately. Um, so I needed a break from the detailed analysis of the minutiae of 19th century romantic relationships. And so I thought, let's shift to some American literature, great American literature. Let's shift to a bunch of crazy men chasing and trying to kill a crazed whale. I have never read Moby Dick before. So I'm about halfway through it. Right now. I'm loving it. And it's one of the most famous opening lines in literature. You know it. Somebody give it to me. What's the opening line of Moby Dick? Call me Ishmael. Now, I'm only halfway through the book. No spoilers. I know the story. I know what happens. But I haven't read enough yet to give me an informed explanation of the significance of Herman Melville deciding to name his protagonist Ishmael. I don't yet fully understand Ishmael and Moby Dick, which is good. I don't yet fully understand Ishmael in Genesis either. I know that the former is named for the latter. I know that both of them are wanderers. Both of them are outcasts. I had a great struggle this week with what to do with Ishmael. I rarely get further into a week than I did this last week. Not entirely sure uh, what to do with a text. But here we are, Abraham's first son, Ishmael. Why is he here? What is the purpose of this story? That is a great question. I did a lot of reading and a lot of listening, and I think a lot of people are confused about that question. Two things helped me. Two things are going to help us this morning. First, the conviction of the importance of context. And the context, if you remember back to last week, is covenant We cannot interpret this story apart from the larger narrative of Abraham. And the larger narrative of Abraham is about God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant, which is a relationship of of life. So Ishmael has to have something to do with, with that covenant and what God's doing with Abraham. And then second, the conviction that we are always to let Scripture interpret Scripture. What does this text mean? What do we do with it? What well, we do with it, what Scripture does with it. We do with it what Paul does with it. So we let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament for us, which was why we read Galatians 4 earlier, and which is why we're going to end up back in Galatians 4 and then Romans 9 as well. You may not love this text. You may not love what I'm going to do uh, with this text. But let's be asking ourselves this question as we begin. Are we willing to let God be God are we willing uh, for to do uh, for God to do what he does and for God to do what he declares and for us to believe that all God does is good and thus agree with what God does and worship God for what he does He is God you are not that is one of the main things that I want us to get from this text because this is a hard text this is a sad story and it's a particularly difficult text if we fail to read it in context and again the context is covenant last week we saw God keep his covenant he is faithful to his word he had promised Abraham a son through Sarah Isaac the son has come but now what about the other son what about the first son the son through Hagar and that's what this passage is about God has kept his covenant last week now this week God is protecting his covenant. And we're going to see how God protects his covenant by looking at Ishmael. We're going to do only verses 18 through 14 this week. And then we're going to come back and look at the rest of the passage. And we're going to see then how God responds to Ishmael. Then how God responds to Abimelech. And then we're going to that's going to teach us a lot, I think, about how we are then to relate to and respond to the world. That's what we're building towards next time. But first today, we're going to see God protect his covenant by removing the last covenant. Great threat to his covenant. And that threat is Ishmael. And the main point of this passage is that Ishmael is cast out. Not by Sarah, but by God. God is, again, discriminating. It's not a popular word today. I'm using it in the sense of God is differentiating, He is distinguishing, He is drawing a distinction. And if, I, and if I'm right, that makes this a really important text. God is life. Relationship with God is life. No relationship with God is death. Covenant is relationship with God. Therefore, in the covenant, life. Out of the covenant, death. And Ishmael is cast out. Isaac is in. Ishmael is out. Beginning of the passage, Isaac is born. Life. Then Ishmael is cast out. Death. This text is literally about life and death. Covenant is literally about life and death. And it tackles a couple of the most important questions. Do you understand who the covenant of people, the covenant people of God are? Do you understand what distinguishes them? Who is in and who is out? It's the eternally important question. And this text sheds much light on it. In our culture that increasingly discriminates and distinguishes and divides people into one of two groups, often white or black, oppressor or oppressed, privileged or poor, we've got to increasingly emphasize the distinction that God makes, not the world. And you could basically boil it down to Isaac or Ishmael, in the covenant or out of the covenant, righteous or wicked, dead or alive. God will keep his covenant He will keep his promises to his people, and he will keep his promises to his people in part by protecting his people um, from those who are not his people. That's Ishmael. Ishmael is cast out, and he is cast out to protect God's covenant and God's covenant people. So all I want to do this morning with you for a few minutes is unpack the covenant significance of Ishmael and make sure you understand the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. So we're going to look at Genesis 21. We're going to see him cast out. And then we're going to jump to Galatians 4 and then Romans 9. And we're going to see Paul's explanation of the meaning of Ishmael's being cast out. And this basic idea is in or out. I want you to see from Ishmael that you are either in the covenant or you are out of the covenant. There's no middle ground. There's no third category. There's no gray area in or out of the covenant. How can you tell? How do you know? What's the difference? Ishmael can help us here. So let me read the text for you. Genesis chapter 21. We're going to pick up in verse 8. I'm going to stop in verse 14, and we'll come back and finish the rest of the chapter next time. Genesis 21, uh, 8 through 14. Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. And the child grew, Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Let's stop there and let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Father, we are very thankful for your word. We are thankful that you speak, Lord. Father, I believe that you speak clearly. So I ask that you would help me to speak clearly i pray that the words that i speak would be a right explanation of the words that you have spoken father you have given us this text for a reason father you are sovereign over everything you have called every single individual who is in this room or who is watching online uh, to be here now for this text and so i ask for you to work through your word i ask for you to help us to see the beauty of covenant uh, the great danger of rejecting you the great danger of being outside the covenant. Father, I pray that you would teach us about yourself and your ways. Father, show us how big you are and how good you are. Father, that you are God and that we are not. So I pray that you would humble us through this text. Father, I pray that you would give us a great desire uh, for more and more people uh, to know you, the God who saves and the God uh, who gives life. Father, help me, Lord. Help us to understand. Uh, this difficult text, and I ask for you to do your work now through this. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, so, the text is pretty simple. Ishmael is cast out. The big idea that I'm drawing from that is that you are either in or out of the covenant. It's in or out. And that should just seem fairly obvious. Uh, but I'm not so sure that it is these days. So, I'm going to continue to belabor. This point. This is extra on my mind this week. There was a there was a survey released this week of kind of the, uh, a survey of the theological beliefs of evangelicals in America by, by Ligonier Ministries. You can go Google it and look it up. It was it was not encouraging. It was actually, in fact, quite depressing. If our theology really matters, as I try and argue, then what this survey reveals really matters because apparently there's a whole lot of self-professed evangelicals out there who do not believe basic biblical truths. For example, uh, one of the questions, uh, 46% of evangelicals surveyed believe, that's basically half, basically half of evangelicals believe everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Uh Uh-oh. That's just a fundamentally unbiblical statement. And related to our text, what do we believe about the nature of people? Well, What do we believe about Ishmael? Do we believe that He is good? What about the world around us? What about our neighbors? Do we have a right biblical understanding of the spiritual state of those around us? Apparently, half of evangelicals do not. Uh, 42% of evangelicals surveyed believe this statement God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh oh. I mean, again, almost half of evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of Muslims. Uh, Arabs, uh, people who believe that they are descended from Ishmael. Muhammad claims to be a direct descendant of Ishmael. Do we believe that God accepts the worship of Ishmael and his descendants? Do we believe? Yeah, you know, they're kind of basically worshiping the same God that we are worshiping. Almost half of Christians believe that. One more. 44% of evangelicals disagree with this statement. They do not believe this, that God chose the people he would save before he created the world. Uh Uh-oh. Again, almost half of all evangelicals do not believe that God chooses. Do not then believe that God is sovereign in salvation, which, as it turns out, according to Paul is exactly what this passage is about. The sovereign election of God as he chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. I didn't tell Henry to open with Ephesians chapter 1. That was perfect for what we're going to see this morning. God chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. One is in the covenant. One is out of the covenant. You are either in the covenant or out of the covenant. One is eternal life and pleasure. One is eternal death death and pain. So this is important. Let's look at the text. If you remember verses 1 through 7, those verses rehearse God's faithfulness to his word in giving Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. Remember the son, the name Isaac means he laughs. And then we see in verse 6, Sarah's laughter of delight and joy. But the birth of Isaac is not a source of delight and joy for everyone. Look at verse 8. It is party time. The child has grown, and the child is now weaned. Uh, They would have done this later in life uh, back then. Isaac is probably, we don't know for sure, but he's probably around three years old at this point. Why a party now? Eh, Good question. It's probably because he's alive. We generally take for granted the life and health of our babies today. Praise God for technology, advances in science, modern medicine, Uh, That was not the case back then. Infant mortality rates were disturbingly high. This child has lived. He's three. He's weaned. This is momentous. Let's have a party. But the point is not the party. The party is only the setting for the significant event that happens at the party. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Pause. Important point here. Read slowly. Hagar The Egyptian. That's like a flashing indicator light. My check engine light is on right now. I'm ignoring it. Uh, Don't ignore this one. And don't ignore how Ishmael is designated here, the son of Hagar. In fact, if you just kind of look over the whole passage here, what do you notice? Ishmael is not named once. Uh, He is the son of the slave, he is the boy, he is the child, he is unnamed. That's another subtle but very important indicator. Back to verse 9. Sarah sees this unnamed son of an Egyptian laughing. Again, this has been an important theme throughout the Abraham narrative. The initial laughter of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief transformed by the grace of God into a laughter of joy. As Isaac means, he laughs Now the cause and target of a different kind of laughter, as if you're looking at the King James, you'll see that it translates this word as mocking. The son of Hagar is derisively laughing, is mocking the son of Sarah. And that's Ishmael. Now, if I was going to be completely honest and upfront, there is some debate over how exactly to take Ishmael. Some would disagree with the approach that I'm taking. So I'll give you that heads up. You can go check it out if you want to look more at it. So let me lay out for you briefly and make my case here. Flip quickly back to chapter 16. Right, this is just the word for laughter. Why do most people translate this in kind of mocking, laughter, derisive laughter, negative laughter? Context and scripture. Look at chapter 16, verse 12. Here's our first introduction to Ishmael. And here's God's earlier word about the nature of Ishmael. Here's God's blessing. We're going to really unpack what it means that God blessed Ishmael and was with Ishmael next time. Verse 12 says, he, Ishmael, shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, wild against, against, against. I think it's difficult to take that positively. But then, again, we have the voice of Scripture itself. What really was Ishmael doing to Isaac? We're going to be in Galatians 4 in a moment if you want to go ahead and start turning there, but Paul tells us. There, Galatians 4, 29, Paul writes, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac, so also it is now. Paul calls what's happening here persecution. In the Greek word Paul uses, uh, persecute means to pursue, to, to put to flight, to chase away. It's the same word Jesus uses many times in the Gospels for uh, persecution. It's aggressive, violent pursuit. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. He was attacking him verbally. He was mocking him. This is significant. Remember what we talked about last week with, with God's Word. God's Word is sure. Remember the very nature of God makes His Word guaranteed. God cannot not do that which he has said. That means, remember, there's there's no specific Hebrew word for promise. Uh, God's word is promise. You can take it to the bank. You can depend on it. It is the pillow on which you can rest your head. And because God's perfection guarantees his word, God's word in a unique way is directly tied to his person. It is a perfect expression of and revelation of his very nature. And so to doubt or to disbelieve God's word is to doubt or disbelieve God himself. This this makes sense to us, right? Isn't it so offensive when someone doubts or disbelieves you, either explicitly or implicitly? And imagine if you told someone, hey, I'm going to do this really good thing. I'm going to do this really important thing for you. And their response to you was, ah, you know, don't worry about it. I'm not sure that I can trust you to do the thing that you have said. I'm not sure that you're really trustworthy. I'm not really sure that you're good enough and faithful enough to do what you have said. But you'd be offended. Right? Your person, uh, your, your character is being called into question, and it would be a great affront. It's mocking. It's an attack. It's a persecution. Now consider, that's exactly what we do every time we doubt, disbelieve, or disobey God's word. We assault his very character. We are in our sin declaring to him that we do not find him good or that we do not find him trustworthy. We mock him, his word, his promise. And consider now that in our text, Isaac is the promise of God. God's word in Genesis 12 has always been all about Isaac. He is the promise. And in mocking Isaac, Ishmael is mocking the very promise of God, the very word of God, and thus he is mocking God himself. And God does not take the mocking of his person lightly. Whatever happens in the rest of the passage, we cannot forget this. Verse. We cannot forget what Ishmael does here. He has mocked God and he has ridiculed his word. Psalm 11, I'll come back to it again and again and again. Influence, blessing is determined by influence. Whose words are you taking in? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. It's a pretty bad duo, the wicked and the sinners. But don't forget the third nor sits in the seat of scoffers, right? Mockers, those who scorn and those who ridicule. In Proverbs 9, 8, and 12, it's the scoffer that is contrasted with the wise. Remember, the main contrast in the book of Proverbs, the only two people in Proverbs, kind of like Isaac and Ishmael, is there are the wise and the foolish. Therefore, the scoffer is the foolish. What is the heart and soul of a fool? Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Ishmael, I am arguing, is the foolish, godless mocker. Here's what Calvin says. Isaac was, to his father and others, the occasion of holy, lawful laughter. Ishmael turns the blessing of God, from which such joy flowed into ridicule. Therefore, as an impious mocker he stands opposed to his brother, Isaac. Both, so to speak, are the sons of laughter, but in a very different sense. Isaac brought laughter with him from his mother's womb since he bore the certain token of God's grace. Isaac, therefore, so exhilarates his father's house that joy breaks forth in thanksgiving. But Ishmael, with canine and profane laughter, attempts to destroy that holy joy of faith. And there is no doubt that his manifest impiety against God betrayed itself under this ridicule. He insults in the person of his brother, both God and his word, as well as the faith of Abraham. That's, that's Ishmael. Uh, another guy you probably haven't heard less, Herman hoxema he summarizes Ishmael. Ishmael was carnal, he was of the darkness, he was corrupt and perverse, he was a sinful man. That's the I, I think some people will argue, oh, no, look, Ishmael, he's good. It's, it's different. Um, I, I just think that the text is pretty clear. And he demonstrates his character, his nature, this, the sinful mocking behavior here. Ishmael is not a child here. Ishmael's 13 years older than Isaac. So again, we're estimating to some degree. So he's probably around 16 or maybe 17 at this point. He's an adult in that culture at this point. And he is mocking and ridiculing the very promise of God. And so we have two seeds. We have two sons. Both sons of laughter ridicule against joy. Ishmael against Isaac. And verse 10. Look at verse 10. Man, poor Sarah. I listened to a lot of sermons this week. It seems that the general understanding of this text is Sarah is mean, Abraham is passive, but God is so nice. Right? They're, they're mean, God is kind. They cashed out Ishmael, but God loves Ishmael. And then the application of basic, basically every sermon on this text is God cares for the outcast, the down and out, and therefore we should too. And all I do is shake my head at that interpretation. Uh, apparently I'm a big head shaker. I didn't know that for a long time. My wife informed me of that. Um, but I did a lot of head shaking this week as I was lifting and running and listening to these sermons. This is not what the text is about. Sarah is a mother. And Sarah is a good mother. Mothers, love and protect your children. Guard them with your lives. Protect them. Mothers, cast out anything that is a threat. To your children mothers do it even if your husband fails to do his job mothers love their children and protect their children one of my favorite shirts that melissa has just says mama bear and has a picture of a bear on it i like that you mess with her kids and she will eat you right that's that's what the shirt is saying as she should and that's exactly what sarah does here as see she should Verse 10, this is the main idea of the passage. Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And you know what some of you are probably thinking? Well, that's so mean. That's so unfair. And guess what? Abraham agrees with you. Verse 11, Abraham is grieved. He is displeased because of his son. And of course Abraham loves his son, as he should. Sarah was wrong about the Hagar thing back in chapter 16. Maybe she's wrong again. Maybe she's just being petty and mean like basically everyone says. No, keep reading. Verse 12. God agrees. God affirms the goodness and rightness of what Sarah says. Sarah, one of the, maybe it's Calvin, someone calls her a prophetess here. Sarah speaks for God here. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your woman, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's the point of this text, right there. Not Ishmael, Isaac. Ishmael out, Isaac is in. Cast out the son. The one son, the one seed, because through the other son, the other seed, shall your offspring be named. That's what God says, and that's what God does. Why? Why is this the approach that I'm taking? Context. I've tried to argue a number of times of the importance of Genesis 3.15 to the rest of the book and then the rest of the Bible. It's kind of sort of the the thesis or theme statement of the book. God is telling us in Genesis 3.15 what is going to happen and what he is going to do. And the whole thing revolves around two peoples summed up in two seeds, two sons. Remember, to the enemy. To the snake, Satan, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is saying in the very beginning that the rest of history will be characterized by conflict. Yes, identity matters. Who is your identity group? Uh, Who do you identify with? Identity determines everything. But scripture says that there are only two identities that matter. You are either the seed of the serpent or you are the seed of the woman. You are either in the city of man or the city of God. You are either of the people of Satan or of the people of God. There are no other categories. There's no middle third category. That's the only identity that matters. In our increasingly identity-obsessed and thus identity-divided culture, we, church, desperately need to get this. Scripture's clear, there is only one race, man, and that one race, though, is then divided into two peoples. Again, not black-white, not oppressor-oppressed, not privileged-poor, but in and out, alive and dead, Satan and God. It's one or the other. And Genesis 3.15 tells us that the two will be at war with each other until the end. God says, two peoples at enmity with one another. Genesis 3, next chapter, Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, Cain's line. Uh, Genesis 5, Seth's line. Genesis 6 through 8, the world and Noah. Genesis 9, Shem and Ham. And then here now we have Isaac and Ishmael. And so Matthew Henry commenting on Genesis 21 writes, there is a rooted remaining enmity in the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. And so, the seed of the serpent, Ishmael, is cast out. And why is he cast out? Well, first, don't don't forget his sin. Don't forget verse 9. He's not innocent in this whole affair, but that's not the main point. That's not the main reason. Ishmael's action is not the ultimate cause of all that is happening here, but God's action. God is Always the ultimate cause. And what God, what is God doing here? He is discriminating, he is dividing, he is distinguishing. And this distinction, this distinction between Isaac and Ishmael is of great spiritual significance. Now let's see what Paul does with this. Very simple. Ishmael is cast out. What does it mean? Go listen to lots of sermons. They'll give you lots of ideas. Let's listen to Paul. Go to Galatians 4. Scripture interprets Scripture. Page 974. I think a lot of the failure to interpret Genesis 21 stems from a failure to interpret it in light of Galatians chapter 4. But we cannot do that. We have the official commentary on Genesis 21 in Galatians 4. The whole Bible is one book. It's all one author, all with one purpose. Galatians 4. 21. Galatians is a unique book, and I think a uniquely relevant book uh, to today, and I think will increasingly become so, more so. Uh, Paul is hot in Galatians. Paul is angry. He's aggressive. Why? Because the gospel is on the line. And when the gospel is on the line, everything is on the line. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You get that gospel wrong, then there is no salvation. Thus, there is only damnation and death the Galatians are at risk of getting the gospel wrong. They are under attack. They are being persecuted and they're listening. Remember this group, these Judaizers have come in and they are distorting the gospel. And if you distort the gospel, you get a not gospel. As Paul says very clearly at the beginning in chapter one, verse seven, there is no other gospel. Thus any distortion, any difference goes from gospel to not gospel, from life to death. And so Paul is going to do everything that he can to make sure they get this gospel right. We must do everything that we can to make sure we get this gospel of life right. And the Judaizers are coming in. They're distorting the gospel by adding to the gospel, adding to the good news about the absolutely full and finished work of Christ. They are saying, yeah, 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 you need Christ. Yes, we believe in Jesus. Uh, yes, grace. Uh, yes, faith. Of course. But you also must be circumcised. You also must do this other thing. You must also must add this thing to that thing that Christ has done. I guess no one today is teaching you that you must be circumcised to be saved. It's probably out there somewhere. But all kinds of people are teaching the same basic idea. Here is some Thing. Here's something that you must do, something that you must add to the work of Christ to be saved. Oh, and it's so very sneaky and very subtle and thus very dangerous. And it's everywhere. Uh, the Judaizer heresy is alive and well in the church today. It's basically the addition of law to grace. Not law rightly understood, but law is something that you must do and keep to be saved. And this, Paul says very clearly, is a false Gospel. And Paul goes on to say that this deadliness is represented by Ishmael. So look at verse 21. Paul says, Hey guys, you want to be under the law? Do you really understand the law? Do you understand what it means and says? Let me explain. And then in verse 22, Paul begins to discuss Abraham's two sons. That's Genesis 21, Isaac and Ishmael. One born according to the promise, one born according to the flesh. Look at verse 24. Some people say this is one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament. I don't think it is. It says in verse 24, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. What does that mean exactly? Well, I mean, figuratively, you could translate it figuratively. Uh, Paul is simply saying there's, there's a deeper spiritual lesson behind this true and historical story and its character. Now, we need to be careful. Allegory in in the past has been greatly abused. We do not get to interpret Scripture however we want. We do not try and look below the surface and come up with some sort of um, hidden super secret meaning. We generally don't interpret Scripture allegorically, except when Scripture itself says this may be interpreted allegorically. We have Scripture interpreting itself. And keep in mind the God who decreed and ordained the events of Genesis 21 decreed and ordained them to also carry and illustrate the meaning that Paul unpacks in Galatians 4. This isn't that complicated. Paul's not doing anything weird here. Uh, we don't get to interpret things allegorically. Paul does because he's writing under the, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we must listen to Paul's understanding of Genesis 21. And so look at verses 24 through 26. Paul says these two women, Hagar and Sarah, represent two covenants. It's about covenants. Two arrangements. Two ways that God has set up to relate to man. First, remember the covenant of works. Basic idea of the covenant of works. Obey me and live. Disobey me and die. That was the first covenant. We looked at it in great detail. The covenant with Adam. He and we disobeyed. He and we all died. Works didn't work. We didn't work. And that same covenant, the covenant of works, we don't have time for this, but that same covenant is then republished again later in the Mosaic covenant with the same basic principle obey me and live. People will sometimes try and argue that the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of grace. Here's one of the spots we're going to just diverge from many of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. I don't see any way that this can be argued as a covenant of grace. Exodus 19, verse 5, God says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. If obey me and you will be mine. That's the covenant of works. Given to Adam, we break it. Re-given to Moses. And we all break it. Why is it re-given to Moses? Think about it. It it doesn't work. Not because there's anything wrong with the covenant, but because there is everything wrong with us. The covenant demands perfect obedience. Remember, covenant is always about relationship with God. This God is not like we think that he is. He is perfectly righteous. To be in relationship with him, he doesn't lower the bar. Uh, No, to be in relationship with him, you must then be perfectly righteous. Thus, the basic idea of that covenant obey me and live. We didn't do it, and we all died. No relationship. Here's Paul's basic argument in the book of Galatians. Look back at chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because of our sin, The works don't work. And anything you try and add is a work. Circumcision is a work. Listen, your own goodness is a work, social justice is a work. Wokeness, anti-racism, all these things that are saying, hey, you got to add these things to these things and be and do these things if you want to be righteous. The world is demanding that you add these things and do them in a certain way to be just and righteous the way that the world says that you have to do them. And then, of course, as is so often the case, the church kind of just marches right into suit, right in suit and increasingly starts to say the same thing. Let's be clear, any attempt to add any work Is death. It is a return to the covenant of works. And that is the covenant that is represented by Hagar. The covenant that Paul says is slavery. That's the first covenant. The second, he says, is represented by Sarah. And that's the covenant of grace. That would be the new covenant covenant, the new covenant that is promised in Genesis 3:15, then promised again to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And what the new covenant does is it doesn't do away with the covenant of works. The new covenant fulfills the covenant of works. Remember, that's what God is promising in the Abrahamic covenant. That's what this whole thing is about. Why does it keep coming back to this seed and to this son? Why? Because we're all born under the law. We're all born under the covenant of works. That must be fulfilled. You must keep the law perfectly and you must pay the penalty for your failure to keep the law. You must be righteous to be in relationship with God. That never goes away. What the new covenant is, is God's righteous provision of a righteous seed, His Son, Jesus Christ, through the line of Isaac, who would come as our substitute and who would keep the covenant of works for us and give us the benefits, the forgiveness, the reconciliation, the relationship and life by grace through faith. So Hagar, in the covenant of works, we work, fail and die. In the covenant of grace, Sarah, Christ works, he succeeds and he dies so that we can live. That's the covenant that is represented by Sarah. That's the covenant that is freedom and life. What's happening in the Abrahamic Covenant is we see this conditional and this unconditional law of notes, this trouble, conditional and unconditional, both in this one, predicting and promising, here's going to be the law coming, you must do this, you must be righteous, you must obey the commands, you must be circumcised, the Mosaic covenant, but then there's also this note of promise and of grace which is about the seed, which is about the new covenant, which is the one who's going to come in and fulfill that for us. You must be righteous. It's either you are going to try to do it and you're going to fail, or Christ is going to do it for you and you are going to succeed in him. So the Abrahamic covenant is actually the covenant of works promised and then fulfilled by the promised new covenant. They're both contained in there. And we see both of them, Ishmael, covenant of works and then Isaac covenant of grace all contained together in what God is doing here through Abraham Uh, the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace go back to Galatians 4 look at what Paul says in verse 25 here's why Paul got beat up a lot look at what he says in 25 this would have been about the most offensive thing that he could have said he says Hagar, Ishmael, all that covenant of works, slavery she is Jerusalem She's Judaism. She's the Jewish people who are not God's people. We've got to understand this. Look back to chapter 3, verse 7. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Let's go to Romans 9. Paul's going to do more with this there. We'll get to his second interpretation of this text now. Go to Romans 9, 945. Let's pick up in verse 7. He is quoting Genesis 21. Again, we have the New Testament to help us. Paul says, not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. Again, that's just clear. He just says, not all who are descended from Abraham are Abraham's offspring. Paul says it in multiple spots. But through Isaac shall your offspring be made. So Paul, again, is telling us what Genesis 21 is about, verse 8. This means, this is so clear, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see, it was never flesh. It was never ethnicity. The physical Jewish people are not God's people. It's always been the spiritual Jewish people. It's always been the people of promise, the church, Jew and Gentile alike, those saved by grace through faith in the promised Messiah. They and they alone were and are the people of God. This is what Paul clearly says. And so Paul says in Galatians 4 to the Jewish people, he says, you're the children of Hagar. He says, you're the slaves. He says, you are Ishmael. Because there was this this temptation and tendency to try and establish their own righteousness through law-keeping. We all have that tendency. And trying to establish your own righteousness in any way, which, again, you must have the righteousness. You must be righteous to be in relationship. But to try and establish your own righteousness in any way is to necessarily then at the same time reject God's righteousness. To reject the gift of righteousness by grace, through faith in Christ. And so any attempt to justify yourself in to be good enough in any way, is to reject the promise of God, it's to reject the word of God, and as we've seen then, it is thus to mock God himself. It's to reject God himself, the God who is life, which means then death. This is what Paul says Ishmael represents. He is out of the covenant. But still, like, really? Is what he did that bad? Is Isaac good and Ishmael bad? And and that's why one is in and one is out? No, let's let's be very careful here. But look back down at Romans 9. This is very important. Look at verse 9. Paul again references the Isaac and Ishmael story. He says, the promise is Isaac. It's not Ishmael. Verse 10. Here we go. Moving from Isaac and Ishmael to the next two sons, the next two opposing seeds. But the principle still applies. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Again, I think we could legitimately substitute there in the same way, understanding what God is meeting with these terms Isaac I have loved, but Ishmael I have hated. Wait, what was that? I can hear your silent objections. That's not fair. That's unjust. Paul can hear your silent objections too, he anticipates them. Verse. 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Church, I just don't think that could be much more clear. Though we just heard at the beginning that almost half of the evangelicals deny this verse. Uh, Church, God's word here, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You can deny that if you would like, but you cannot deny that while claiming to follow Christ. It's his mercy. Word and His Word declares very clearly from beginning to end that He is sovereign in salvation. He chooses whom He will save, not based upon us, not based upon any goodness in us. I hope you know yourself well enough to know that there is no goodness within you. There's none within within me on my own, and He doesn't base it on any foreseen faith in us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't have faith but it is based entirely upon God and entirely upon his goodwill and mercy. Verse 18, look at verse 18. Paul says, again, very clearly, so then God, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And I can hear you again, that's that's not fair. Paul hears you. Paul anticipates, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Church, God is God, and you are not. That's one of the most basic but most difficult of Christian truths that we must get. God is God, and you are not. God is sovereign, you are not. God is good, you are not. God is righteous, no one is righteous. No, not one. And so our only hope is for the righteous God to choose to save some. And that's what grace is. It is God's sovereign election of those whom he is going to save, not because we are good, but because he is good. Not because we have done anything, but because he will do everything. And he will do everything for his own glory, as the rest of Romans 9 goes on unapologetically to make clear. He hardens some to glorify himself through his right and good, justice and judgment. He has mercy on some to glorify himself through his gracious mercy and love. And all of it is ultimately about him and his glory. We are ultimately about him and for his glory. Everything is ultimately about him and for his glory. Psalm 100 verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who made us and we are his. The maker has rights over the make. He made us. We're his. We owe everything to him. And he is good, and he is glorious, and he's the center of everything. He is absolutely sovereign over everything. He is big, and he is great, and he is grand, and he is glorious. He's the very center and purpose of reality. And so, he will do what he wills. And that is right, and that is good. He is God, and you are not. And that is in large part what is illustrated in the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Listen, That's the conclusion that Paul draws towards taking from them. And that's where he takes it in Romans chapter 9. Ishmael is out and Isaac is in. And it is ultimately God who has done this. It's not Isaac was good or Isaac had faith. So God saved him and Ishmael was bad or Ishmael didn't have faith. So God didn't save him. Now, listen, it was both were wretched Sinners. And this will be very clear as we get along later to Jacob and Esau. Jacob's awful, right? It's just very clear when we get to that story. No, both were wretched sinners. Both deserved nothing but the just judgment of God. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. All deserve condemnation and damnation. But God, but out of the utter graciousness of his heart, God saved some when none Deserved it. Listen, there is no unfairness in God. Everyone deserves judgment. This is something I think the church doesn't take into account as we're wrestling with everything that's going on around us. Uh, big picture, eternally, there is no such thing. There is no injustice. That's impossible. There cannot be injustice. You know, earthly, timber, of course, there is injustice. But God. Like God will right all wrongs. Everyone. Uh, we'll get justice. There is no injustice with the perfectly just God. You either get the justice you rightly deserve or by the grace of God, you get the mercy that you did not deserve. Everyone gets justice. Some people get mercy. And so what this should do is just enlarge our picture of God. This should humble us greatly. We should, like Job, be very quick to put our hands over our mouths and be silent. There's great wisdom in silence, uh, according to the Proverbs, because this is God that we're dealing with, and he is not like us. We do not get to tell him what he should do and what he should not do. We do not get to criticize and correct him. We will either love him and submit to him as Lord, or we will hate him and reject him and thus be rejected by him. We will be either Isaac Or Ishmael. Because church, those are the only two options. Those are the only two peoples. Those are thus the only two identities that matter. And there is an eternal discrimination, division, and distinction between these two groups. And it is God, ultimately, who draws the line. It is grace, ultimately, that makes the difference. And so we must be able to recognize this difference. I'm afraid that we are lacking in this ability increasingly. I'm afraid that there is a great lack of discernment. Well, you know, they're pretty good people. Oh, you know, well, they, they stand for some good causes. Oh, you know, they've done some these good things. Well, you know, they go to church sometimes. Oh, you know, well, they say they believe in God. No. Church. If they have not been born again by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, if they have not been made New, a newness, which then shows itself in a new life, a new affection, a turning away from the world and sin, a growing love for the things of God, a growing love for an identification with the people of God. I see more and more people uh, affirming this thing. Hey, we can do this as good as we going to do that. And yet it seems that they're pulling away from the church and attacking and criticizing the church. And first John is very clear. That's just a sign of depravity. Right? God's people love God's church. And so this will demonstrate itself in a growing holiness. And if they haven't had this, if they have not been born again by grace through faith, then no matter what else, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are cut off. They are cast out. They are slaves to sin. They are seeds of the serpent. They are followers of Satan. And their end will be death and hell. Unless, unless they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. From you, church, nobody has that. We have it, unless they hear that good news and repent and believe. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign over salvation. Romans 9 is clear. Yet, yes, it is he who saves, but he works through means. He works through the means of his word and his church to save sinners and to bring people from death to life. But listen, we first got to be able to recognize and actually believe that everyone apart from Christ is spiritually dead and will be eternally dead if they do not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent and believe. Maybe we don't speak of Christ so much because we don't really believe that everyone who dies apart from him goes to hell forever. We've got to get this eternally important distinction. Not so that we can set ourselves against the world. Not so that we can make it an us versus them kind of thing. Not so that we can be proud and arrogant. No, church, nothing humbles like an understanding of the gospel. Nothing humbles like an understanding of God's absolute sovereignty. We've got to get this eternally important distinction so that we can actually help people. I think one of the most important verses in the Bible that the American church needs right now is Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's Jesus. None. It will profit him none, Jesus says. We can achieve... Perfect social justice. We can set up a a, a utopia of equality on earth. We can redistribute resources. We can do all these things that more and more people in the church are pressing the church to do. But what will it profit if we do all of these things perfectly for people? If they gain the whole world and they still forfeit their soul eternally, do we believe in the soul and the eternal nature of the soul, and of heaven, and hell? And do we act and live like we actually believe that? Moby Dick begins, Call me Ishmael. Man, what should we call you? What will God call you? What will we call those around us? It's either Isaac or Ishmael. Everyone is either an Isaac or an Ishmael, of the flesh or of the spirit. Everyone is of the flesh by nature, born a slave by nature, until by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, they are set free. So who are you? you? In this moment, right now, you are either in the covenant or you are out of the covenant. Ishmael is cast out, and he is cast out as an example and a warning to all of us. He is cast out to demonstrate the absolute godness of God, and in so doing, humble us before this great God, enlarge our vision of this great God. Draw us then to this great God who is the only one who can save and who does it through his word. His word of promise, grace of the true and better Isaac, Jesus Christ. Church, every all of this, Genesis 21, all of it exists to get to him and to glorify him. Church, can you see what God is doing here? Can you see and love God for what he does here? Can you see the goodness of what God does here? Can you see that in Christ, he is committed to your good and your protection? Let's not forget that. He is protecting his people and he is protecting his covenant and he will protect you. He will cast out all that threatens you ultimately. He will do that which he has said. Be humbled that he would do all of this for you. Rejoice that he would do all of this For you, though you were no different and no better than Ishmael, and then be moved to see the bondage and the slavery and the eternal destiny of everyone around you, all the Ishmaels around you, and then help them. Help them by giving them the only thing that can help them, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, who died for a countless number of Ishmaels so that they could be made Isaacs. And it's all by his wonderful grace for his glory. And he is doing these things now to teach us and to show us and to magnify himself and to humble us and to draw us to his son, Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for now. And let me close this time with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I believe because you say that your word is living and active. So, Father, I pray now that that living and active word would work. I pray that it would take root in our hearts. I pray that you would uh, prepare and soften our hearts. Father, we are often so hard of hearing. Father, we are often so stubborn. Father, you are so patient with us, your people, and I'm very thankful for that. Uh, We, apart from your grace, are no better than Ishmael and are no different than Ishmael. Father, in Christ, uh, we are eternally... It's different and set apart and saved, and it's all your grace. And, Father, I pray that that grace would warm our hearts and fill us with great gladness and great joy. And I pray that that grace would define our identities, it would define the reason that we are here. Father, we are not here for our own glory. We are not here for our own comfort and ease. We are not here to pursue our ends. Father, we are here because and for you and to pursue your glory and to pursue your ends and to pursue the salvation of your people. So, Father, forgive us, uh, reorient us around your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel that is life. Father, help us to believe that the gospel is life. Father, change our perspective on the world around us. Father, I pray that you would um, pull back the curtains. I pray that you would use something like the book of Revelation to show us the world for what it really is, Lord, and for the evil um, behind it. Um, Father, you call Satan the God of this world you in Ephesians 2 that everyone is following him. Father, help us to look at those around us as those who are separated from you and doomed to hell apart from your grace. And Father, I pray that you would motivate us as individuals. You will motivate us as a church to be what you have called us to be. To be your ambassadors, to be your witnesses, to be lights and lamps. Father, to, to do for the world what only the church can do. Just to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, please help us. We thank you for your forgiveness. And I thank you for your mercy and your kindness towards us. Father, make us more like Jesus. I pray that you would do that this morning um, by teaching us about Jesus and helping us to love him more so that we would long uh, to be more like Jesus and then long for more people to know him. Father, thank you. Um, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus.